What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at jude3project.org. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And uh, today I'm joined by my friend, um, fellow co-laborer, apologist, uh, Abdu Murray. Welcome, Abdu. Oh, Lisa, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for, for joining us again. You were on just a few months ago talking about karma and mm-hmm. so it's good to have you back. For those who missed that episode, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. Well, my name is Abdu Murray, and um, uh, people get thrown off oftentimes by the Arabic first name and the Scottish last name. Uh, but uh, my last name is Murray, uh, which got um, sort of transliterated when the family came over to Murray. Uh, so I, I come from the Middle East. I was born in the States, uh, raised as a Muslim, and um I was took it pretty seriously, and over the, until the age of 27, I was a Muslim. And then uh, during uh, before that, I took a nine-year uh, journey, philosophical, theological, scientific, historical, um, all these things, to find out what worldview actually has the best answers to the toughest questions. Um, and ultimately, came to the conclusion that it was the Christian faith. It was the classical Christian faith uh, as taught in the Bible, um, and um, uh, as uh, kept in tradition by the church, traditionally, that holds uh, the, the greatest case and the greatest answers to the toughest questions. And so after that, I gave my life to Christ um, in uh, in the year 2000. And since then, um, I've been dedicating myself to the offering the credibility of the Christian faith to every questioner we encounter um, and recognizing that behind every objection, behind every issue, behind every controversy, there's a person. So the mission statement for Embrace the Truth, the ministry that I am um, the chief writer and speaker for, we have another great writer named Derek Caldwell, who does some wonderful work and joins me on my podcast occasionally. Our mission in Embrace the Truth is to offer the credibility of the gospel to every questioner we encounter um, and to specifically not answer questions, we answer people. Uh, because questions don't need answers, but people do, and they use their questions and their objections to get them. So we're cognizant always of that. Because people did that for me. They reached out to me. They didn't just answer my objection. They answered Abdu Murray, and that resulted in me coming to faith. Yeah, that's so, so powerful. Um, I love that mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are the author of a new book, More Than a White Man's Religion. I have it here. A uh, fantastic resource uh, for our our listeners. Um, But before we get to the book, you all know who've been listening. We are in our uh, Can We Trust the Bible series. And I thought it would be great to have us talk about uh, the Bible 
uh, in relationship to other sacred writings. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible is not the only book that is deemed sacred um, in the world. There are mm -hmm. other books. And so uh, I thought Ab Abdu was a, a great person to have on this. Now, I know I said last week that we would talk about uh, this week. Um, can we trust the New Testament? That's coming um, in a couple weeks. Uh, we had to push that back. But we're going to get to that. But this week, we're going to talk about the Bible and other sacred writings in mm -hmm. our Can We Trust the Bible series. Mm -hmm. So, Abdul, when, when you think about the reliability of the Bible and how it compares to other writings, mm -hmm. kind of what are your first thoughts as it relates to that? Well, I have a couple of thoughts uh, specifically. One, you have a question of reliability in terms of do we have now what they wrote then? And every uh, book uh, of sacred texts, and um, you, you have to ask that question, whether it's the Quran or the Upanishads or the Vedas or whatever, um, uh, the, the writings of Confucius, whatever it happens to be that you hold to deem sacred, to, to have sort of timeless truths, you have to ask yourself the question, do those timeless truths actually comport with what was written originally? Because if they've been changing over time, then you have to ask yourself, are they truly in fact timeless or do they need to be updated? Um, so when we say sacred, for example, a sacred text, what we often mean is not just something that we hold sacred, because I think that's an important distinction. I can hold a lot of things sacred. My marriage is a sacred trust, for example. And while God has brought it together, no one would necessarily say that somehow the relationship between me and my wife, Nicole, is an example for all people for all times of how to actually live in perfect marriage because our marriage isn't perfect. It's great, but it's not perfect, even though God brought it together. So just because Nicole and I hold it as a sacred trust doesn't mean it's sacred objectively for everyone. I think the first question you have to ask is, is a text sacred in the objective sense, which means that it's holy, which means it comes from the pure uh, moral source? I think that's the first question you have to ask. So when I look at the Bible and I say there's a lot of competitors for, for that, the questions you have to ask are, one, do we have um, today what was written then? Um, two, do we have a, a book that, has, that, that, take, that contains objective moral truths that are timely for the time it was written, but timeless for all times as well? And three, does it actually comport with, with reality as we know it uh, in terms of the facts that it, 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 it gives you? Um, so I think those are at least three questions we have to ask. And so those are the questions I did, in fact, ask on my own journey um, of, of faith is that is this Bible or any book for that matter? Does it meet all three of those questions? And there's, of course, more that I asked along the way. But those are I think, are the starting point questions to ask on the objectives. Um, reality of, is this a sacred text, not just to me, but is it a sacred text in the sense that it's come as guidance that is um, beyond human in that sense? Uh, and just as, as, a, as a short aside, when you take a look at someone like a Jordan Peterson, for example, Jordan Peterson would say that he really admires the Bible as a sacred text in a certain way. And what he means by that is not necessarily that it, ha it, it is inerrant, comes from God, and um, is the sole guide for all of life. He admires it greatly, but I think that there would be some some hemming and hawing and some qualification as to what he means by that as to what Christians have classically meant by the Bible being a sacred text. So I think those are the starting point questions. Yeah, that's that's helpful. When we when we dig into some of uh, the various sacred works, Quran uh, mm -hmm. Quran as an example, mm -hmm. um, how what would be the differences mm -hmm. um, 
in the the Bible and and something like the Quran. Yeah, this and this is important because there are historical differences, there are theological differences as well. I want to start though by being very very careful, and and this is an important thing because we have to appreciate a little bit of nuance in this position. The nuance here is this: is that there are sacred texts that speak to the human condition all across. The, 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 well, the human condition uh, and all across human history, which to me suggests that there are at least kernels of truth in all of those sacred texts to a degree. Um, you know, they speak about the need for, some of them speak about the need for goodness and for charity and for duty and honor and honesty. Um, but they don't all say those things in equal measure, and nor do they say all those things uh, with equal veracity. In other words, they can't be verified necessarily. So let's take a look at the Quran, for example. The Quran teaches that there is only one God. He is the only uncreated being that there ever was, and he is the greatest possible being. So far, I think every Christian would agree that the Bible teaches the exact same thing. But there are some differences. The theological differences include uh, these. A Muslim would say that it is blasphemy to say that God is... Uh, though he is one in his nature, he is three in his persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as part of the karma discussion you and I had, the Trinity was a big part of that discussion as well. Um, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say this is that um, uh, I think that this is something so important to us because the Trinity actually is this beautiful doctrine that makes sense of every other doctrine of the Christian faith, which I think goes to the veracity of the Bible as well in a cohesive way. In other words, because God is one in his nature, there's only one being, but he's three in his person, then the whole mm -hmm. idea of the atonement actually makes sense. Um, so you have a cohesiveness in the Bible to all of its doctrines. The Quran says this is blasphemous. The Quran says that it's blasphemous essentially to say that Jesus is God, that God would ever become incarnate and condescend to be um, a human being. And he would never do that. And he has not done that. And that's a fundamental distinction as well. So those are some theological differences among many important ones. Because without an incarnation, you can't have an atonement. Without an atonement, you can't have salvation in Christianity. And the Trinity makes sense of this. The Quran denies all of these things. And so what you find is, is that there are some superficial similarities, but there are some fundamental differences, theologically speaking. And I think those differences make a difference um, in an important way. But I also think that if I look at the Christian case, um, I think it's a strong case for believing that God is, in fact, the greatest possible being um, that Muslims are searching for. But it can be, he can be found and found fully in the Bible. Historically speaking, there's a big difference as well. Um, uh, the Quran, for example, denies that Jesus was even crucified to the point of death. Um, in the fourth chapter of the Quran, it says, which uh, it, it's translated, it means, um, they, it, meaning Jesus, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it looked like it to them, or it appeared to them as if it was so. Um, and so there is a denial of the fundamental historical fact of the Christian faith, because you got rid of all the other historical Christian, uh, the other historical issues of the Christian faith and left this one. This is the most important one. And if you got rid of it and kept the other historical facts in the Christian faith, you'd have no Christian faith. The resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. So there's a historical difference there. Now, I think what is a important difference that we have to understand is because of this historical difference and the theological differences, now we have to ask ourselves, is there adequate warrant to believe that there is, that God exists as a Trinitarian, in a Trinitarian state? That the that Jesus was incarnate in the flesh, God in the flesh, that he 
died on a cross and he paid our debt um, uh, uh, on that cross and that he rose from the dead. Because if all of those differences are proven true, then you have a strong implication that the Christian faith, specifically as it describes God and history in the Bible, is uniquely true and worthy of our allegiance. So those are those are just some of the differences. Um, if I can point out just one similarity that I think is important, and maybe this would be important for Muslims who are watching this, there's a narrative, and I think some fundamentalist Christians hold this narrative of the Bible as well, that sort of the Bible came uh, sort of dropped out of the sky, as it were, in, in, a, in a metaphorical sense. But and, and, it, and we have like the original Matthew or the original Mark or the original Leviticus. And of course, as you know, Lisa, we don't have those things. What we have is copies of copies of copies and these kind of things. And there have been variants uh, in the uh, in the scribal in the manuscripts in terms of the scribal sort of um, uh, recension of the of, of the of the Bible. But we have so much evidence such a plethora of evidence that the more evidence we see, the more we can compare different uh, 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 manuscripts and their variants, and the variants actually help us. They don't hurt us. They help us to determine what the original actually said. So we can, with confidence, say what we have now is what was written then. The common Muslim narrative is that the, the Quran was revealed and has never in any way, shape, or form undergone any sort of um, historic history as well, like a similar history where there's um, variants and redactions and these kind of things. And that's just simply not the case. In fact, Muslim scholars the world over are now recognizing that, that this holy book also has a history. In fact, Keith Small, the late Keith Small, a wonderful scholar of the Quran and the Bible, wrote a short little book based on a very much longer book called Holy Books Have a History. So we have to ask ourselves then, if the Quran has a similar history where People had copied it down and either made mistakes or made mistakes in terms of uh, their recollections. And some of these crept into the text. These histories put them on a level playing field in terms of they have a history. But now the question is, do we have confidence that what we have now with the, the Quran is the same as we have when it was originally uh, spoken or written and these kind of things? And that has its own history as well. And so what I would do is strongly encourage people to go look at that. Um, at history. So there's a similarity in that there is a history. Um, but I think with the Christian faith, we have such a powerful history of the preservation of the Bible um, and its ability to be critiqued. And it's been critiqued for centuries that after all of that scrutinizing, after all of that crucible, we can have confidence that what we have today is what was written then. And not only was it preserved, but it wasn't a preserved lie. It was a preserved truth because it comports with history as well. So I think that's an important distinction as well. The Quran does give some history, but it's sort of fragmented in one sense. You know, there's stories in the Quran that are that, that share affinity with the Bible, but there's very few stories that have a beginning, middle, and end. The only one that I'm aware of that has a full beginning, middle, and end is the story of Joseph. Um, every other story that is either referenced in the Bible or has other references in other parts of history sort of assume that the reader actually knows some of those details, and those details can be found elsewhere. Now, the, but the Bible, however, gives you beginning and middle and end to the stories over and over and over again. And it's rife with historical details that can be verified. And in fact, they have been verified. It's like uh, one scholar said that every time they, they, they shove a shovel into the ground in the Middle East, they turn up something that verifies something the Bible said. Now, we're getting there closer and closer, but archaeology is really supporting this book. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's super helpful. And I think helpful for our audience to know I, I think 
you know, as I'm as you were talking, a lot of people that are listening might really not understand what Islam teaches and what the Quran Quran communicates. Oh, I, I think I lost as you, the core message of the Muslim faith. Can you do like a uh, just an overview for those who are listening that are not familiar with what Islam teaches. They they know Muslims, but they don't really know what they believe. Um, and I think that would be helpful as we're talking about uh, the Quran. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. I think it's really important is that Muslims believe that there is only one God. Um, uh, in fact, the, the beginning of the, the Shahada, the, the thing that you say in order to uh, become a Muslim, you have to have this creed, and it's La ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulallah, and that 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 is La ilaha illallah is the statement that there is no god but the one God, but Allah. And the word Allah, by the way, in Arabic, it literally means the God. So it's not actually a name; it's um, a title. Um, it is he said he's the one and only God, and that you have to also assume, uh, 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 testify that Muhammad is his prophet. That um, uh, Muhammad comes in a long line of prophets, starting with Adam and ending in Muhammad, and he's the last prophet. Uh, Muslims believe that there are there have been holy books revealed by God. Um, in fact, the Quran names them, and other places in the sacred texts of Islam name them, including the um, the Taurat, the five books of Moses, the Zabur, the Psalms of David, and the Injil, the Gospel of Jesus. It names a bunch of other prophets as well, or Old Testament figures, um, and even New Testament figures, um, as part of those who were sent by God with a message. So God has revealed Himself to humanity through various messengers, hundreds of thousands of messengers, actually, um, to all peoples, um, and they all culminated in Muhammad. And the Qur'an, which is what he spoke, um, is the ultimate revelation from God. Now, this is an important distinction because the Qur'an in human, in, in, uh, in uh, sorry, in Muslim conception, the word Qur'an literally means the recitation. So Muhammad uh, didn't, has no authoritative um uh, measure in the Quran. He didn't author it at all in Muslim belief. Rather, he was the mouthpiece through which the words of God came to humanity. So these are literally the very dictation of God. Muhammad spoke them and his followers memorized it or wrote it down. Um, and so the Quran is the sole measure or the primary measure of faith. Now, there are things called hadith, which are uh, a, a literature about how to live. But essentially, the Quran says we got here by Allah's will. God, God is the only uncreated being that there is, and um, he created everything else, the purpose of which is to worship him. So we are master and slave. He is the master. We are the slave. In fact, the word Muslim is one who submits, and Islam means submission. So humanity's purpose is to submit to Allah's will. But Allah does not reveal himself in an intimate way to humanity. That's orthodox Islam. There are other versions of Islam that suggest that he does. But the orthodox um, uh, uh, Islam uh, 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 say, says essentially that um, Allah does not reveal himself intimately. Uh, rather, he reveals only his will through the Quran and through his messengers. Um, and that will is that we obey him. And a part of that will uh, is that um, we are to do good works, call people back to true monotheism, and if we do enough good works, 
our, our cosmic balance will tilt, that our good works will outweigh our bad works and we'll go to heaven. But if our bad works outweigh our good works, then we'll go to hell. And that hell is eternal conscious torment. Uh, in fact, the Quran uh, describes it in quite torturous ways. So um, uh, those are really important, um, I think, fundamentals of Islam. There's a lot more to it than that. But uh, essentially, it's a works-based system. God has to grant you mercy. God is, in fact, merciful. But you have to um, uh, sort of earn that mercy through your good words and your good deeds, um, and specifically in the Quran. And there is no savior, by the way. The reality for, for Islam is that, uh, as the Quran says, no bearer of burdens regarding sin, no bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. Uh, so you are you are accountable for your own sin, and you have to do enough good works, basically, to uh, earn a, earn a mercy that would forgive you for those sins. Um, and this is a point I think of uh, a bridge to the gospel, because the Quran says, "No bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another," meaning regarding sin. Well, that's a relief because Jesus does not bear his own burdens; he has no sins of his own to bear. So, if that is true, then Jesus can bear all of our burdens because he doesn't bear his own. And I think that's mm. an important bridge for us. Yeah, no, that's that's super, super helpful. And I think helpful for our audience because I think a lot of people have heard bits and pieces about the beliefs of Islam, but not mm -hmm. really had a comprehensive understanding. So I thank you for taking the time to provide that. And I think that's an excellent yeah. backdrop as we're talking about their sacred book because mm -hmm it's impossible to really understand uh, the book apart from the belief and vice versa. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for them it is too bad because they hold it so sacred that that is the measure by which their belief is considered orthodox. Um, they, they have a sola scriptura kind of a feeling about things. Hadith play important roles, but it is such an important um, uh, part of their, of, of their belief system that it, that it's, it's sacrosanct. There's no other measure for how we are to believe contrast that with other worldviews where you have like the Upanishads and the Vedas, for example, which might be considered a guide uh, in Hindu in Hindu belief, um, and they can be modified and changed by the times. Um, and there's while there's events and things recorded in the Upanishads and the Vedas, uh, uh, most of it is um, non-historical. I don't mean unhistorical. Uh, I mean non-historical. I don't even think it's intended to be history specifically. Some things do have historical root, but a lot of stuff doesn't have like a location um, where this thing happened. It's more um, um, more mythic in that sense. And so lessons are to be learned, even if the history can't be proven, the lessons are to be learned. And so it becomes more metaphorical. And so Hindus of different strands can take different parts of those 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 sacred texts and apply them to their lives and their beliefs in different ways. So there are only some non-negotiables in Eastern uh, Eastern religions like Hinduism or Buddhism, like karma and um, death and reincarnation, the cycle of samsara, for example, uh, and enlightenment. Those are non-negotiables, but much of it is negotiable. Uh, one scholar of Hinduism said, you will not find a systematic theology of Hinduism because for every doctrine, there's at least two exceptions which allows sort of a malleability to the whole thing. Um, and that's based on how they view their sacred scriptures. Whereas Christians and Muslims would view their sacred scriptures as the rule. And innovation beyond that uh, would, you know, courts uh, uh, heresy or um, a deviance from a, sort of a true authentic faith. Mm -hmm. No, that's helpful. Any other things you want to say about other sacred books that are out there that you think mm -hmm. would be helpful for our audience to know? 
and how yeah. they compare and contrast to the Bible we have. Yeah, I, um, you know, I've said this before in other in other um, uh, contexts, and I think it bears bears repeating here. Uh, there's a great book, by the way, that if you ever want to basically go through a, a good survey of different religious systems, it's, it's written by a guy who, as far as I can tell, isn't necessarily doing it from a Christian perspective. He's a, a secular uh, um, scholar of comparative religion. Stephen Prothero wrote a book called God Is Not One, and he talks about the different major worldviews out there and their basic ideas and their sacred texts and what they mean to them. Um, <clears throat> here's what I would say. Almost every sacred text that I can see, and this is from Prothero, he basically says they all start with a commonality. There's something wrong with the world, and we need to fix it. It needs to be fixed. Um, so they start with the same starting line. Something's wrong with the world. Human, the human condition is not what it should be. That's why we have all these rules and these ideas. But they all have different finish lines. The finish lines are always different um, in how you get there, whether it's devotion or yoga or um, meditation or you know um, uh, ethical monotheism or law-based things. These are all ways to get to a, a state where we can fix things. Um, I would suggest one additional line is that all of these religious texts start with the same uh, starting line, something's wrong with the world, but except for the Bible, they all start essentially with the same ending line, which is you can fix you. If you do enough mm -hmm. good things, you'll fix you. This is where I think the Bible is a uniquely uh, important book, because I think that it's your messages that you can't fix you. We can't be the solution because we are the problem. There is something inherently wrong with us uh, in terms of our sinful condition, that we are made in God's image, but we've strayed from that image. And therefore, we can't fix us because we are the problem. We, we need someone who's not us to fix us and to save us from us. Um, that's a uniquely Christian perspective, and the Bible says this. Why I think that that is a beautiful truth, even though it seems ugly, is because the Bible basically tells you the way the world actually is. It doesn't sugarcoat it. I think other religious systems might be telling you what you want to hear, which is, yeah, you can't deny that the world is not great, but you can be, you can do it. Believe in yourself and you know, believe in God, but believe in yourself too, and you'll be fine. If you do enough good things, you know, things will work out. The Christian faith is so starkly realistic, yet also hopeful. It says, no, the world is the way it is because of us, and we can't be the solution. And thanks, thanks be to God that he has provided a solution as one who stands in our place. So the Bible is real and realistic and verifiable in the human condition. It tells you the way it is, but it doesn't tell you what you want to hear, that you can save you. It tells you what you need to hear, that there is a Savior who is not you. And so all of it coalesces together. The Bible is so beautiful because the doctrines it says, the reason why there's an incarnation is because though we can't save ourselves and we are basically responsible for our human sins, someone has to stand in our place to pay the debt for us willingly. And Jesus does that. And so the incarnation, the enfleshment, as it were, of Jesus makes him our representative. But he has to have a divine nature because he's also got to be perfect. And human beings just aren't perfect. And so he is fully human and fully divine and then can sit in our place on that cross and pay the, the penalty for us. It all coheres. And then when he makes that payment, the son makes the payment to the father. And the son and the father, though they are the same essence, they're different personhoods. So the payment is real. It's not just putting money in your right pocket from your left pocket. It's a real payment. And the Holy Spirit 
quickens our minds to all these things. The Bible teaches all of this. So the Trinity makes sense of the atonement. The atonement is only possible because of the incarnation. And all of these things are in the sacred text and they all cohere together and they form a unified, cohesive, coherent, and historically verifiable message. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Uh, We wanna kind of switch gears a a bit and start talking about your book, I'll lift it up again more, more than um, a white man's religion. What was the motivation for you writing this book? Yeah, so I I was uh, writing something else originally, and I was talking about the eternal contemporariness of Jesus, that he is uh, timely in that he spoke at the time in a way that people of his time knew what he was talking about, but he was timeless in the sense that everything he says also applies to our daily lives. But I was also struck by how timeless, how, how he was not a product of his time. When you look at other sacred texts, for example, or you look at the founders of other religious systems, Yes, you have to take what they say in the context of the history in which they lived, because that's not fair to judge them by 21st century standards alone. They have to be speaking to people who could understand them at that time. But those texts are bound by the time in which they're given. I think they're stuck there in many ways. Jesus is not a product of his time. And so what I began to see is that though his culture was terribly sexist and terribly misogynistic and also rife with ethnic um, uh, animosity and and division and segregation and these kind of things. Jesus is none of those things. And he has every reason to be immersed in that culture, to be a classic misogynist, to be someone who divides along ethnic lines. And so as I was writing this thing, talking about his timelessness, it ballooned up into 80 pages. And it was going to be a chapter of one book. And I, I, I said, look, this can't be just, this is a whole book. Um, but also the fact that the matter was at that time, you know, uh, all the stuff that's going on, the rise of the Me Too movement was happening. And we were becoming very aware that women were being mistreated um, uh, in several and important ways across multiple industries uh, in, the, in the workplace and, and at home and other places. Um, and two, when you see all that's going on and it continued sort of uh, the tensions racially uh, within um, the Western society. And then with the death of George Floyd, when he was murdered, it blew up to the whole world. I mean, everyone's talking about this. And what I started to notice was that a big part of the narrative was that Christianity as a white male religion, as a religion that was used by white people to dominate people of color and to uh, uh, oppress women, It's the cause of all these problems. And I felt the need to write this because I fundamentally believe it's part of the cure for the very things it's being blamed for. So that was the impetus for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell our audience just a little bit about uh, how you framed your arguments in this Mm -hmm. book to help respond to the claim that Christianity is a white man's religion. Yeah, and you have to go, I think, step by step. Um, And I had this wonderful conversation with an African-American guy uh, years ago. Um, He had turned away from faith and basically become an atheist because he had been convinced that um, Christianity was, in fact, the religion of slavers. Uh, It was an inherently racist uh, idea. And um, so I used that conversation as sort of the the unfold, because it was a long conversation. Um, uh, One of the most thoughtful ones I've ever had on such an incendiary topic, you know, because um, uh, this can blow up pretty quick and emotions can run high. But 
Um, I learned as much from him as he learned from me. I can guarantee that. It was such a good conversation. Um, but the framework of that conversation started off with the morality of the question in the first place. Uh, racism and sexism are objectively evil. I think all of us agree with that. Some may not, but that's another issue. But I think all of us would agree that those things are objectively evil. Um, but they're only objectively evil if there's a source by which we can, outside of human opinion, that we can judge these things to be objectively evil. Because if there's no source of morality outside of humanity, um, then they're not objectively evil, they're only subjectively evil. And so when the majority of people in this country thought it was okay to own people because of their race, then it was okay until we sort of thought maybe it won't be. So it becomes a matter of fashion, not a matter of morality. Um, but if there's a source higher than us that dictates these things objectively, that all human beings have value, regardless of whether they're male or female or whatever their ethnicity happens to be, then we are beholden to that higher authority. And so the first part of the book is to frame the question in its moral context, that the question itself or the outrage at racism and sexism only exist in a, in a, in a coherent way if, the, if God actually exists. Then the next question becomes, how did we how did we come to view Christianity as a white man's religion? Um, uh, because as that becomes an increasingly popular objection, um, I begin, you, and you read the Bible, and you're asking yourself, how did that happen? When you read the source text, how did it come to this? In fact, contemporaneously, right now in history, the Bible, is, sorry, Christianity is mostly not white and mostly not male. There's a slight majority of women. Uh, who are who are who are who profess to be Christians around the world? So you have this uh, uh, the global South. You have an explosion of Christianity in in Africa in uh, various countries. There you have it in the Middle East. It's growing, even though it's very tough for it to grow there. You have it growing in China and other places. So the majority of folks who are becoming Christians are not white, um, and um, and a lot of them aren't male. So it's not even true demographically right now. And so I, 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 I want to understand what do we mean when we say Christianity is a white man's religion? And so the argument is framed that way. And then I go into each section. We go with, because um, the, the title is important. It's more than, it's not not for white people and it's not not for men. It's for everyone. So it's more than these things. So part one frames the question. Part two tackles the issue of race and ethnicity and talks about some challenging passages in the Bible. Um, we have to uh, understand those because uh, they're tough and we have to understand them fully. And then we look at them in the life of Jesus. So the next chapter basically focuses on how did Jesus deal with these things? Then we shift to uh, gender or sex. Um, what about women? And we address some tough issues, some tough uh, scripture verses. And then we talk about Jesus's life and how do we look at that? Because that's the corpus of what Christianity is. And then the third section, which is really only a chapter, but it's an important sort of ending to this is that not only is it more than white, not only is it only more than male dominated, it's, it's not male dominated, it's not more than just, it's more than just for males, but it's also more than religion. What do we mean by that? It's not, it is religion, but it is also that relationship and that covenant, and it means so much more. So that's the, that's how the, the book progresses. Yeah. And I love how you, one of the things Abdu didn't say is he was one of the leading uh, attorneys in Michigan before he became a full-time apologist. And I think you could tell in his argumentation that uh, he was an attorney. Well, still yeah, is I, an attorney. Yeah, but I still am, uh, but 
Yeah. Not practicing. I, I, owe, I owe a lot to my I owe a lot to my mentors to help me to learn how to build an argument, not a case, uh, and build a case. So uh, that's that sticks. That tend, when you do it for that many years, it tends to stick. Yeah. Um, Abdu, is there anything else you want to share about the book uh, that you think would be helpful for our audience to note before we close out? Yeah. Well, thanks, Lisa, for the opportunity. Um, uh, as you know, um, there's something in there about. Um, uh, something you had said to us is that when you were trying to start out and you were trying to raise some funds and um, get going in your ministry is that you, uh, uh, a mentor of yours told you a stark reality, an unfortunate reality of life was that you're going to have a, a three problems. One, you're young. Two, you're a woman. And three, you're African-American. And those shouldn't be problems, but they are. Um, I think Jesus is the solution to those problems, and the church needs to wake up to this as much as the secular culture. So this book is not written just for, I mean, I'm always evangelistic in what I write. And so what I want is the hardened skeptic who is hardened away, thinking that Christianity, I'm not even interested in if Christianity is true. I want to know if it's moral, because I, I think it's racist, and I think it's sexist, and these kind of things. This book is for that person, but this book is also for the church, is that we need to not only believe these things, but that belief needs to transform our actions as well. Um, and so we can begin to see each other made in God's image so that we're not blind to gender because gender is not an incidental thing. You know, I'm not incidentally male and you're not incidentally female, even though the Bible says there's neither male nor female. Um, that's a matter of equality issues. That's a matter of um, the regard that God has for us. There's no distinctions, but you are going to be female in heaven and I'm going to be male in heaven. Um, and that's not an incidental thing. God did it on purpose. I'm not incidentally Middle Eastern and you're not incidentally African-American. Uh, we shouldn't be colorblind either. Color shouldn't determine our decisions on fairness, but color is the kind of thing we should see because ethnicity and gender are expressions of who we are, but it's God's image. And I hope I make this case in the book, but it's God's image that determine what we are. So we are definitionally made in God's image. We are expressively African-American, Middle Eastern, Anglo, Puerto Rican, Chinese, Indian, whatever it might be. And that's the glorious mosaic that God has planned for us. So that, so the Bible and, and the life of Jesus is, I think, a book of mosaic a mosaic of fairness, a mosaic of justice, a mosaic of love, and a mosaic of mercy. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Abdu. Uh, how can people get in contact with you on social? Yeah, so um, you can go to our website, embracethetruth.org. Um, on uh, Twitter, it's at Abdu Murray. Um, on Instagram, it's at Abdu Murray12. Um, you got to do the one and the two, because if you don't, you'll get somebody else. Um, Facebook is uh, Abdu Murray uh, and uh, 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 TikTok. I got a new TikTok channel, and that's um, Abdu Murray as well. And of course, we have a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Abdu Murray official. Awesome. And you can get more than a white man's religion wherever books are sold. And I'm glad uh, Abdu mentioned uh, the challenges uh that i've experienced as a black young woman as an apologist uh fundraising because that's a perfect segue into our ending and closing about uh becoming a supporter of the g3 project we are currently in a fundraising campaign to raise over 1.5 million dollars for the organization and i want to put that number out there so y'all know 
how much we need to raise uh, this year. It's actually 1.6 million. Uh, but uh, I I want our audience to know what our goal is. I know it's a high goal, but many other organizations raise much more. So it's not as high as you may think. Um, and so, like Abdu said, it is very challenging for me being a woman, a black woman in the apologetic space where people are not used to giving to our organizations to impact us. Um, but it can be done with generous support from from listeners and people that uh, listen and uh, are edified through the work that we're doing with the Jew 3 Project. So if you would like to join us uh, in reaching our goal, you could do so at Jew3Project.org uh, backslash donate. Hit the donate tab on there or you could um, give uh, by mail. Um, I always like to say every gift helps equip. And so also you all can pray for me because it always is challenging uh, when it comes to fundraising for being a black woman uh, in this space. Uh, so Abdu, thank you for mentioning that. That was the perfect layup for us to, to alley you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a better uh, term uh, to, to help support the ministry. You can also uh, support and be equipped through our resources like Courageous Conversations and get the unspoken curriculum at unspokenmovie.org. Um, calm. Uh, we have so much in store for you this year and make sure, make sure that you uh, share this podcast with somebody else that might be blessed by it and come back next week uh, as we continue to talk through this series. Can we trust the Bible? Uh, I believe it's going to be rich and helpful uh, for our listeners. Um, remember here at the Jew 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Grace and peace and God bless. What's up everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew 3 Project. And this is six highlights from the Jew 3 Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series, Through Eyes of Color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew 3 Project at Jew3Project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.